Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. We are currently finishing up the book of Nahum. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Nahum chapter 3, please. Nahum chapter 3. We come um, to the last chapter of the book of Nahum regarding the judgment of God over the city of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria, a very powerful and cruel nation. The proclamation of the judgment was given in chapter 1. The description of the judgment is given in chapter 2, and the vindication of the judgment now comes in chapter 3. In other words, when God judges and brings that judgment 150 years after Jonah, 50 years from the time it was proclaimed, it is absolutely just. When God passes judgment on every individual that has rejected him, or every time he chastens the believer, he is absolutely perfect in his judgment. There is no mistake. No one ever gets the short end of the stick. But he is compassionate, just, holy, and perfect in every one of his judgments. Though we may not agree with him, it doesn't really matter. His perfection is guaranteed by his person and by his name. And so chapter 3, verse um, 1 through 7, we have um, the moral reasons for the deserved judgment here. Chapter 3, it says, Woe to the bloody city, where it is um, full of lies and robbery. Its victims never depart. The corruption of the city of Nineveh was very, very well known, as we've seen over and over in the time that we spent time in these three chapters. The word woe, again, has the expression of judgment and well-deserved judgment. You have many of them throughout the Old Testament. You have in the New Testament, Matthew 23, the woes of the scribes and the Pharisees. And woe is always judgment, but it's a warning to all. And many times those woes come with plenty of time because God is looking for repentance. Uh, God doesn't really want to judge. He would much rather forgive, the Bible tells us very, very clearly. For if God didn't want to forgive man, he, would, he didn't have to make the way of redemption. And he certainly would not have crucified his own son on our behalf. So the very proclamation uh, of the judgment and of the offer of forgiveness is motivated by God's love. The corruption of city and Nineveh again, uh, very great. And so Nahum gives the reasons why God is against Nineveh. He's already given some of them in chapter 2, verse 13. Um, he will give some more in 3, 5. But they're throughout the book. And the city is identified with uh, blood. It's a bloody city. It's violent. It's brutal. It, um, it just destroyed people. It had no sense of justice. The city is also a city that could not be trusted, a city of lies, deceptions. And when these things um, function and exist within a society, then there's no safety or stability among the people. They are in their fear. They don't know who they can trust. 
They are out for themselves and therefore there is no real peace. There is no real productivity. It's every man for themselves. It's literally a form of anarchy. And um, the city's full of robberies also, as it says right here. Um, theft, that form of taking something that does not belong to you, which again, God in the Ten Commandments uh, strictly um, forbids, you know, the, the stealing and, and, and the, taking the Lord's name in vain, lying, I swear on a stack of Bibles. They go together. Uh, lying is to rob somebody of the truth. Lying is to get something to your advantage at the expense of another. Now, straight robbery here is of material things that um, are wanted by somebody because they're too lazy to work or they're too dishonest and they're just whatever it may be and they feel that it's easier to grab your stuff than for them to go work for their own stuff. But also in terms of political um, ideologies, there is a whole aspect of socialism that moves into making everybody on an equal level. And therefore, it doesn't start like that, it ends like that. And so the way they get to that level is to take the stuff of other people and distribute it to the lesser people and the lazier people and the entitled people to demonstrate the goodness of socialism. But once all the wealth and money of those who make businesses and make money is gone, now socialism is pr proven to be and revealed to be what it really is. It's hell on earth. So the propagation of socialism is fine as long as there's somebody's money still to be spent. But once all that money's gone, then the ideology of free kind of just goes away. And that's the problem with people that don't study history and people that um, are just coveting the things of others constantly. And so the city here, very brutal, very violent, um, and therefore God is bringing judgment upon her. Again, the background is the preaching of Jonah, um, the turning back to sin and everything. In verse 2 and 3, we have the description of the conquest over Nineveh. He says, uh, the noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of um, galloping horses, of chattering um, chariots, Horsemen charged with bright swords and the glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. Uh, chapter 2, as we saw, gives the literal battle going on as it's going on because God can see the future at the present. He lives in the eternal present. But here the description um, by they were fearfully intimidating with their chariots in verse 2. Notice that. Uh, by the sound of the snapping whip, by the chariots of the horses charging forward into battle. These are the, um, um, the combined forces, again, uh, that we have with the Medes and uh, Babylon and, and the Scythians. Um, the sound of rattling, the quaking, the trembling, the sound of the whip of, uh, of the charging horses. The galloping horses as they um, charge into the battle. Uh, the enemy um, seeing them charging and perhaps even 
breaching the walls and um, they're seeing their perfect um, average of defeating everybody all of a sudden slipping through their fingers and all their glory, all their pride, all their self-assurance is just melting away. Um, how often you have seen a basketball team and they're arrogant and they've never been defeated and they just think that this team that is giving us a challenge to them that they can't beat them and then all of a sudden as the game moves on and it starts slipping away from them and and what happens these big guys and they're just so and then they they even cry at the end the arrogance the pride of man and so the sound of the galloping horses bringing a helpless desperation among the the enemy of the Assyrians here, they were mighty warriors, they were cruel. The chariots again with the flaming torches, um, the Assyrians had heavier um, chariots of metal compared to the Egyptians of wood, and, uh, usually two wheels and they had um, spindles at the end, uh, blades to destroy the, uh, the wheels of the others. There would be three men or two men upon it, the driver and an archer or two archers. And uh, chariots were like tanks for a modern day, uh, very, very powerful, very intimidating. And, um, and here they're seen through the streets in chapter 2, we're told there in chapter 2, throughout you can see the battle raging and the jostling of them. In verse 3 here they were um, fiercely intimidating with their uh, violent, um, uh, brutal uh, warfare here. As uh, I can't even imagine, I mean, you have um, trench warfare in World War I, which was incredibly brutal. Um, you have some of the uh, jungle fighting that went on in Vietnam. that um, was very, very brutal. You have the IUDs now in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, man is just um, vicious, uh, war uh, I don't. I can't even understand how they can even dare to say there are some rules in war. They're, what are you talking about? It's moronic. And the only thing that that person is trying to do out there, they're trying to stay alive, and they're trying to kill the other person before they get killed. And uh, and it's all because of man's viciousness and their desire to have a little more power or a little more territory. We are a brutal, brutal race with our sinful nature. And it grieves God very, very much. And it's never going to end until the time that the Lord comes back. In verse 3 here, their attack was without hesitation committed to kill the enemy. The horsemen charged with the bright swords, the glittering spears, speaking about the shininess of the blade as well as the point. And... Um, you know, far away is one thing, and then when they get closer, it's a whole different matter. Um, they were both committed to kill each other. But here again, the uh, Assyrians have this arrogance, this uh, long-running, um, victorious record. And um, they're just laughing and mocking at these uh, confederated nations, and yet they have no idea that God has has already defeated them because God is using these three groups of nations to judge the Assyrians 
which he has proclaimed long before. Um, their eyes and hearts were not moved with any sense of human compassion or mercy, evident by the fourfold repetition there in verse 3. Regardless of the many killed, there's a multitude of slain. Regardless of the incredible amount of bodies and body parts laying around a great number of bodies. And regardless of the endless number of to end up dead, countless corpses. Regardless of having no to trample and ride over dead bodies, stumbling over the corpses as you try to make your way to kill the enemy or to survive from the enemy. And um, it's, um, it's something that, that only men who have gone to war understand the devastation of. As you and I read it, we've never been to war. We read it and we have some type of imagination as we've seen movies, this and that. But all of that is just theory. It's when you're in it and yourself personally that the real emotions, the real psychology, all of that kicks in and it affects you. You're never the same. It's the reality of it. And so everything is very clean and sanitized when we go through it from the intellectual aspect, but the reality of life, it's a whole different thing altogether. And some of you men have been in warfare, and, and um, I thank you for that, and, and uh, there's no way we can ever understand it's just not anything that God created man for. And so they were fearfully intimidating by the advance of, advancement of the army by their horsemen here in verse 3. Nahum depicts the enemy as fearless. Um, they, they charge the, 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 the chariots. Um, Nineveh was not defeated because they were inferior in military might, but because God was against them. All your preparations, all my preparations, thinking that I can run from God or defeat God or get over on God is really comical. And at very best, futile. Again, the second chapter gives to us many of the battle and the specifics there. Now, in verse 4, the um, sexual and occultic practices of the nation of Assyria are brought up, which is a major key reason for her judgment. He says, because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Sorceries repeated, repeated twice. The imagery is one of sexual lewdness because the multitude of her harlotries, a seductive harlot. The nation is, is portrayed as personified as a woman here. Their practice had seduced and infected nations one of the main reasons for her judgment. Um, Isaiah 14 speaks about Satan, how he deceives the nations. He's a liar. Um, the word harlotries means whoredoms, usually identified with fornication, adultery, or prostitution. And because man has been made and created for 
uh, after the image and likeness of God and to worship God that any other form of, of worship or any other form of motivation for life apart from God is really an unfaithfulness to the Creator uh, because He has created us for Himself. And the nature of our harlotry is said to be one of, of a seductive harlot. Notice that, which means that which is pleasing, agreeable to allure and to deceive a woman of her trade, of a harlot, a prostitute. She knows exactly how to allure. She knows exactly how to entice and how to draw men because this is her trade. She has all her tricks. She knows exactly what she needs to do. And the degree of her treacherous deception and seduction here is said to be a multitude, an abundant number with the nation. So uh, um, Assyria was not only the mistress, the, the, the head pimp, if you will, and the, the madam of the house, but she ran the whole business and it's through the occult. So this is not just mere poetical language. Um, satanic activity goes on and this is nothing new um, the nations have always sought power either from God or Satan there's only two places you can get it and um, Assyria is not the only one or new to this um, the reference to sorcery is to witchcraft seeking and calling upon demonic spirits or mediums um, Deuteronomy 18, 10, and 11 uh, says, um, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter to go pass through the fire, one who practices witchcraft or soothsayer or who interprets omens or sorcerer or one who conjures spell or mediums or a spiritist, one who calls upon the dead. Now, there are many in our nation who, in our last 30, 40 years, have increased their interest and their activity, and now many of these occultic practices are approved and accepted by the common-day person, even professionals. Even police departments have sought mediums and, 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 and people who say they can see the paranormal to help them in their investigations. Classes are given in college campuses about the occult. Uh, movie stars will swear by the good of them. Uh, Oprah Winfrey is probably the greatest promoter of this kind of stuff on her program. All these books. Now it's into the emergent church, inside the church, through contemplative prayer and many of these things. And yet people don't see the danger of it. There are only two forces, ladies and gentlemen, God's, his power, or satanic, one of the two. And so the purpose is to rule others, notice, who sell nations through their harlotries. And sorceries is repeated there. The seductress, always to take advantage of people. The ultimate end is to enslave people, to make them slaves. So they would sell people, they would just um, traffic people. And today, a lot of the human trafficking has to do with the occult today. And, um, you know, at one time, America was kind of shy against all this stuff. I remember growing up in the 60s when the Ouija boards came out. You know, and mothers would, as the Ouija boards, my son coming back from Vietnam alive. 
And that little sucker moved. It wasn't a game. And yet people sometimes take these dark avenues to think that it's for good. No, it's good for nothing. It's occultic. It's real. It's not something that's a game. And so, Assyria would do this to enrich and empower herself over people and nations through slavery and indebtedness. Just like it will be during the Great Tribulation through the mother of harlots and through her sorceries there in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. If you read through it, you see the parallel there. Now in verse 5 through 7, you have the opposition of God against Nineveh. He says, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kindness uh, and the kingdoms of your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? And so the opposition of God against Nineveh, it is not that they were mightier in armed forces against them, though that may be true from the human perspective, but it's because God had declared judgment and God was using these nations to judge Assyria. And God has been doing this from the beginning of time. He has in the past. He's doing it right now. And he will do it in the future. We just don't know what nation and how God's involved in it. But we have all the sufficient evidence that God's on the throne and that he is in control without ever making men do the evil by his hand. But knowing the evil they do, God is glorified through that as he can predict what's going to happen before it happens. So when it happens, you know it's God who has told you about it. It's real simple, okay? Now, he is the captain of the armies of heaven. Notice that, the Lord of hosts. He has said this before in chapter 2, verse 13. And whenever this phrase is used, it means that he is going to war. And God has never lost a battle in eternity, ever. This is repeated as a judgment from the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, the judgment of Nineveh, chapter 1, verse 2, verse 9, verse 10, verse 14, and all throughout. Notice in 5, the vileness and shame of Nineveh would be exposed by God. The lifting of her skirts over her face exposed her, her nakedness of her body, of her harlotries to the kingdoms. This is a practice that you find through the scriptures in Ezekiel 16, 37 through 39, Isaiah 47, 2 and 3, Jeremiah 13, 22, Hosea 2, 3. And they would pull the skirts up on a woman over her face and just expose her entire buttocks, everything else because of her unchastity and her lewdness. Because even as bad as the Assyrians were, to, to, to reveal a woman's nakedness was, was, was not nice, as cruel as they were. Today we have people 
who call it art. They're lame brains. They're perverts. It's sad that when Supreme Court judges can't tell the difference between a piece of art and a piece of pornography. It's a, a sad day. Um, God would desecrate her openly to all notice, casting abominable filth on her, indicating excrement. Because she's like a pig rolling around, making herself vile, contemptible. He would make a spectacle, a sight of derision, of gazing stock, the old King James says. Everybody gawking, looking, mocking. None, not one, would want to join themselves to Nineveh or Assyria. Look at verse 7 there. Seeing her, all will flee from her, saying, Nineveh is laid waste. Such a great empire. Powerful, fearful, gone. No one will lament for her, nor attempt to comfort her in her disgraced condition. But all of this was brought on by herself, not by God. Whenever you see the atrocities that take place within God's judgment, it's always the consequences of the actions and decisions that men and women have taken and leaders of the world have taken. It's never that God has led them down this path. It's not God's doing. It's the individuals. Whether it's an individual life, whether it's a family, whether it's a, a, na a state, a nation, or the world. God destroyed the entire world in the days of Noah. Not because they were nice people. The human race got so corrupt that God could do nothing but destroy them. And yet he took a small selection of the human race, eight people. Eight is the number of new beginnings. But it began all over again. A brand new rotten world. <laughs> Because Noah was a sinner like anybody else as well as those there. And so you can just um, really appreciate and thank God for his goodness and his patience. I mean, um, if you were God, would you have given it a second shot knowing the same thing was going to happen again? That's why God is so different from us. We would have given up on us a long time ago. God is not. Because he is the otherness of us. He is the creator. We're the creature. He knows all things. We just think we know all things. In verse 8, down to 19, we have the moral judgments of God taught from history in terms of his judgment. Um, verse um, Five through eight, you have the defeat of Noaman. Um, I'm sorry, eight down to nine, you have the defeat of Noaman here by Assyria. Um, he says, Are you better than Noaman that was situated by the river, that had the waters around her, whose rampart 
was the sea, in whose uh, wall was the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was um, boundless. Put in Lubin were your helpers. And so here, um, did Assyria think herself better prepared is the question here in verse 8 to defend herself against God now? Was she better prepared than Noaman? Noaman was the famous capital city of Upper Egypt, the city of thieves. And uh, when we used to go to Egypt on our Israel trips, we all used to tag on Egypt or, or the Greek islands or Rome. We used to be able to tag on three days for about $300, and now it's gotten so expensive, we don't we just go to Israel. But um, Egypt is interesting, and we went through all those cities, and how interesting that God judged Egypt, and Egypt has never risen to a world power, as God said. He didn't say they would be extinct. He said they would just not be a world power, and they haven't. God said Assyria is going to be extinct. When's the last time you met an Assyrian? Now, you've met a person from Syria, a Syrian, but not a a Syrian. (laughs) Okay? It's different. And so God's word is so perfect. If you could, if Egypt became a world power, you could throw your Bible away. If you had the nation of Assyria today, you could throw your Bible away. Such is not the case. God is true. And every man's a liar. And so it's situated by the river, the Nile River, the great barrier of protection. Water's all around her, as it says here, rampart of the walls. And in 701 B.C., it was conquered by Sennacherib. In uh, 671 B.C., it was conquered by Esarhaddon. And in 663 B.C., it was conquered by Ashurbanipal. The city had great defenses, great strengths. The mighty Nile. Deserts on either side. Allies to the north, allies to the south. Who could, who could reach her? Well, God says, I'm going to have Assyria reach you. <laughs> and the question to Assyria is very important because it was Assyria that God used to judge Egypt. Who was as arrogant as Assyria thinking no one can catch us. No one can reach us because of our defenses, natural and through allies. Well, those things mean absolutely nothing to God. Absolutely nothing. You stop and think about our vulnerability as a nation today as so many people hate us. That um, if you think that we have been safe and nothing has happened to us because we have such great security. You've been smoking something. We live in an open society. It would take absolutely nothing to destroy us. You can't stop it. The only reason is God's mercy so far. That's all. Just God's mercy. And so as believers, we understand this. So our trust is in the Lord, not in our own abilities. That doesn't mean that you don't make good preparations of safety in your home. It doesn't mean that you're not careful, but you're not trusting in the ultimate protection 
and abilities of yourself. You realize that you're in the hands of God and that He has control of your life and as you obey Him and as you seek Him and as you obey and walk this life that He is more than faithful and He will be sufficient for the difficulties of life because He says He never allows us to be tested more than we're able but with every testing show us the way of escape in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So that's a great comfort. That's a great encouragement. It's, 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 it, it gives you great hope. It's not a hopeless outlook. But knowing that God is faithful. And so on the second campaign in 663 B.C., Ashurbanipal went to Noaman and defeated the city and raised it. And there were Judeans in the Assyrian army that saw this event when they heard or read the words of Nahum. They would have been encouraged, even as he said to us in the earlier chapter. When the good news reached, they would be comforted. The Assyrians were able to defeat a strong and impregnable thieves, and God would now fulfill his word in the same way to bring Nineveh down. Is there anything too difficult for me or too hard for me, God says? It's a rhetorical question with only one answer. No. Absolutely nothing is difficult for God. So in verse 9, the uselessness of allies, those of no, Amun, for protection, are declared here in the north and the south. Ethiopia means, it's Cush and it means black. Descendants of Cush on the southern part of the Nile River. Uh, when we went to Egypt one time, we had dinner on the Nile in the ship. Uh, interesting. You sit there in your hotel and you look out and you can see the pyramids and the Sphinx. Uh, but again, Egypt is Egypt. It's not Israel. So when you go to Egypt, you, you be careful what you drink, what you eat. That way you can enjoy the rest of the trip. <laughs> so you just uh, suck it up, drink water from a bottle, eat beef jerky and the stuff that you can. If it's... Uh, if you can't peel it, you can't boil it, don't eat it. It's just real simple. And then you can enjoy the rest of the trip. Um, put means a bowl. Probably the um, Libyans. And Lubin, empty-hearted in uh, North Africa, west of Egypt. So these allies here. And, um, but they were useless. Um, sometimes people are trusting in man and that, you know, when they, and they don't believe in God and, and they put all their trust in that. And, and then when the destruction comes, they, they, they have no way or to turn. But yet even God in his goodness, he will use those situations to reach out to men. And how many men and women have reached the end of themselves in very difficult situations or even tragic situations or even during World War One, World War Two, and the rest of the wars that God has used to save. How many of men on the battlefield have in their last minutes and last breath that God has made himself known to them and they've entered heaven? We'll never know until we get there. But God is merciful. God will do everything he can, but he won't force people to go to heaven.
On his second campaign in 663 B.C., Ashurpanipal went to Nuaman and defeated the city and raised it, as I said. And um, again, these, these individual allies, well-intended, but they, they would not help Assyria at all. And um, great booty or spoils of war were taken. Um, the um, records of Assyria talk about uh, raiding the palaces and the bright color of linen garments, uh, great horses, people, male and female, uh, two tall obelisks. Uh, I removed from their position, it says, and carried them off to Assyria, heavy plunder, and countless I carried away from knee or thieves, uh, and just all these records. Asher Bonapal also commissioned a relief depicting the fall of Noaman. It is labeled an Egyptian fortress in the British Museum. And so we have all these records, all this archaeological stuff that really uh, verifies the scriptures. And God always does this. He, um, he has archaeological individuals go out there and um, he just digs up stuff to verify what people have doubted and mocked for years. And then all of a sudden, when God reveals it, there's all kinds of excuses and they go away until they go searching for something else they might object to. It's always interesting. Um, verse 10 and 11, Noaman was taken, destroyed. And so would Assyria. He says, Yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for their honorable men. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. And also you will seek refuge from the enemy. And so she was taken and carried away captive, speaking of Noaman, thieves. Lots were cast for the honorable men of nobility, but not before they saw their children dashed to pieces as the Assyrians would grab them by the leg and the foot and smash their heads against stones or whatever, or beat their brains out. All her great men bound in chains. These mighty men, these men of great wealth. Now they're broken. The arrogant pride of the Assyrians thinking the victory would be easy. So they resorted to drinking. They were drunk as it says here. But um, they ended up realizing their worse fear and ended up hiding from the enemy. And it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword of, of arrogance and pride. We saw the same in the book of Daniel with Belshazzar as the um, Medo-Persians were outside the wall to take the city and Belshazzar was so confident in the fortification of Babylon that um, 
He just had a drunken, debauched feast until he saw the hand on the wall. Meaning, meaning, tekel, you farson. You've been weighed. You've been found wanting. Before the night's over, you'll be dead. The kingdom has been given to the Medes and the Persians. God was in control. And uh, God help us that we trust in anything but in what God can do. And so, not only her great men are bound in chains, but... Um, They are humiliated completely, verse 11. Verse 12 through 13, you have the condition of Nineveh was ripe for judgment before God, as he's been declaring. And here he says, All your strongholds are fig trees with ripe, ripe, ripe figs. If they are shaken, they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open. For your enemies, fire shall devour the bars of your gates. And so all the strong defenses would not help them. In fact, they would fall apart just like shaking a fig tree. If you've ever had a fig tree, and you know when the figs are ripe, you just need to just hit it and a whole bunch of them fall. So in others, what they believed to be adequate fortifications would crumble right into the mouth of the Assyrians. They, they didn't stand a chance. The people would be overwhelmed with fear as a bunch of women. There in verse 13, mighty men that just were overwhelmed. Their gates would be compromised and set on fire. And as the archaeological digs bear witness to the city being put on fire, you also have the same thing with Jerusalem, with um, Nebuchadnezzar. And when we go to Israel, we go down to the city of David. You can see down there by Ophel, the very line of burnt, still there, of the time of Nebuchadnezzar as the city was taken. Again, archaeological digs don't lie. And every time they un uncover something else, it just verifies the scriptures. They have what they call tells, and these are mounds that are covered one after the other in the succession, and they'll excavate them and, drop, and, and dig down, straight down. They'll see the different layers, the different ages, different civilizations. It's an incredible thing. And there's all kinds of stuff buried over there in Israel. Every time they're making highways, they bump into something, they have to make a U-turn, do something around because they can't destroy the thing. They've got to dig it up. And it's part of the history of Israel. And so... Here again, um, God declaring what's going to happen before it happens. And then we see that it's happened exactly like that. And we have the evidence. But let's just say we didn't have any archaeological evidence for any of this stuff. Would that bother you as a Christian? Wouldn't bother me. Because there's sufficient stuff that God has proven to be true that what I don't understand or have evidence for doesn't bring any doubt upon what he's revealed. So in other words, whether I understand it or not, whether I believe it or not, it's absolutely true from Genesis to Revelation. And see, the person in the world who is intellectually um, savvy and they pride themselves in the ability to think, but um, their thinking is far different from the thinking that God would have. And so they look upon you as a poor fool that you just believe the Bible. And um, they feel sorry for you or they mock you. 
when really the, it's the reverse that's really the problem. And uh, they are so arrogant in their own ability to explain God away and to just declare that they have it all together and, you know, we are the human race and, you know, we've always gotten out of things and we're going to get out of this, you know, we're very resourceful. Um, it may be true, but uh, not this time. <laughs> no, we're right on schedule, and um, the schedule's almost over. And uh, we're right on time. Now in verse 14 to 15, we have the efforts to defend the city that, that would fail. It says, draw your water from the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and shred the mortar. Make strong the brick uh, kiln. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locust. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. And so the water supplies, the fortification, the materials to make repairs for the wall in verse 14, they would be useless. doesn't matter. The city was, was burned with fire, as we said, and the sword would destroy the people, overwhelm them as the prophet is mocking them, calling them for the Assyrians to gather the multitudes as a locust, even a swarm, but it wouldn't avail. It would be futile. doesn't matter. In 16, he says... You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. So the Assyrians had multiplied their merchandise more than the stars of heaven, indicating um, the incredible control and wealth that they brought from the commerce of the nations. Again, they are the mistress. They're the ones in control. And you know the one in control gets the bigger piece of the pie, right? And the rest get the crumbs. It's just the way it is. It's the golden rule. Whoever has the gold rules. And um, the Assyrians, like locusts, plunder. They invade. They strip and plunder, taking all spoil and booty for herself. And they fly away. That was their nature. That was the way they, they, uh, they ruled. In 17, you have the commanders and captains. They would move slow to move being gripped by fear. So now the same imagery, the same metaphor is turned around. He says here, your commanders are like swarming locusts and your generals like great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away. And the place where they are is not known. So in other words, the imagery of the locust on a cold day moving slowly, but when the sun rises, they fly away. On the archaeological finds, there was a bird swooping down on a lone locust sitting on the branch of a palm tree. The head of the Ilmite king hangs in the adjacent fir tree. From the palace, of Ashurbanipal at Nineveh, at Nineveh. Now it's in the British Museum. So we see the language that Nahum is using 
and we find it in much of the archaeological digs and some of the things, and we see the correlation, the language, the verification of the language of that day and the imagery of that day. To its right is a bird swooping down as if to catch it. One art historian described it, the scene this way. Related to this is the image of a locust, a light upon an upper branch of a tree. A short distance from the severed head of, of Tumaman, a bird sweeps down towards the insect as if to devour it. This uh, apparently minor detail may have special meaning, for in the annals, Ashurbanipal describes the Ilamite as a dense swarm of grasshoppers. Within this context, the locust may signify the last vestige of the once dreadful enemy, now virtually eliminated. And so we see the correlation, the verification of all this. How interesting that at the end of the book of Nahum, we have another reversal of the fortunes. Instead of the Elamite being the locusts, the Assyrians are, and they are about to be eliminated. But Nahum does not describe the destructive respect of the locust plague, but rather the flight of the locusts after they have done their damage in Nahum 3.17 here. He states, your commanders are like swarming locusts, your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges in the cold day, and when the sun arises, they fly away, and the place where they are is not known. So they did this, but now they would go and they would be totally destroyed. They would be in captivity. So everything got turned around completely. When you get to verse 9, 18 and 19, you have the verdict of God, the final verdict here over Assyria. Verse 18 says, Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? And so, the ineptness and futility of all the leaders of Assyria to avoid her destruction. It's a done deal. The announcement to the king of Assyria of the final destruction is by the metaphor of the shepherd slumbering. Uh, drowsy, literally, is what it means. Careless, inactive, unable to defend the sheep that are ready for slaughter. The nobles, her great chieftains and leaders at rest in the dust, dead. The people are scattered on the mountains in fear of their lives and no one to help them or gather them. No one gathers to unite them as a nation having been judged by the very hand of God. Meany, meany, tekel you farsen. Daniel 5.27. When God judges a nation, the nation is done. There was a time when England used to boast that um, 
The sun never went down on her empire because it was worldwide. And England was ruthless to those that she dominated. Arrogant, proud, inhumane at times. And through the ages, all her subjects now have come home to England. The majority of them are Muslim. So God has reversed it on England. Any nation that has turned its back upon God, study history and see what happens to it. Any nation that has raised her hand against Israel, study and see what has happened to her. The British mandate in 1948 when England left, she betrayed Israel and within hours of the handing over from the British mandate to Israel, and declared her independence, Britain had prepared the Arabs to attack Israel. What has happened to England? No coincidence. Germany. Look at Spain. Now we are against Israel. That's not good. Not good at all. Those that bless y'all will bless. Those that curse y'all will curse. Genesis 12, 3. That is still in effect, ladies and gentlemen. Israel is the apple of God's eye. I am not defending everything they do, how they do it. But I'm not stupid enough to go against them. God will take care of the whole mess. Anybody who wants a two-state nation is fighting against God. Read Obadiah. You do not divide my land. Simple. Leave it alone. And so the concluding summary statement of the unredeemable condition of Nineveh, we did a full study this morning. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to get it. Her injury has no healing. Her wound is severe. The word injury has the idea of breaking, fracturing, and crushing, uh, life-threatening. Um, the word no healing, the idea of weak, infective, colorless. In other words, it can't be healed. There's never going to remedy. It's not going to get better, but it's a decline towards termination. It's unrecoverable. Micah 1 9 says, For her wound, her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah, it has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. So what was true of Assyria was going to be true of Jerusalem. 606, 586, 596, 586, the three sieges through the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Zephaniah 2.13 says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation as dry as the wilderness. Zephaniah 2.13 corroborates with the same message that we have here in Nahum. And so the people will clap in celebration over her destruction, joyful that she is finally brought the judgment. Psalm 47.1, Lamentations, 
gives us a little bit of the clapping that means celebration, but here it's in rejoicing over her judgment. It says, in rejoicing over God, it says, Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Psalm 47.1, a celebration uh, in God. Jeremiah's Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 15. As you know, as he's lamenting over the destruction of Jerusalem, her walls are burnt down, the temple, everything's been sacked. And Jeremiah says, All who pass by clap their hands at you. At you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Wow. It says that Jeremiah went out to what's called Jeremiah's grotto, and he just wept over the city. God had been faithful to him. They had not killed him. He was allowed to stay in the city. He chose to stay rather than to go to uh, Babylon and be rewarded and live like a king. He was forced to go to Egypt, most likely Jeremiah died in Egypt as uh, um, he was forced by those who were left behind. And so Proverbs 5.22 says, His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. And so this is the record of Nahum the prophet regarding the city of Nineveh. 150 years after Jonah, destruction came. 50 years before it took place, he proclaimed the judgment. Those who gave heed, I'm sure, if they call upon God, they were safe. But I think not many did. They asked Jesus, are there many to be saved? He says, few strive, agonize to enter in. And so, it isn't because there is no way to get to heaven. It's the fact that people don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's why people miss heaven. They love their sin more than they love God. And they figure that they just might get away with it. It's a long shot. You'll never make it. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for tonight, and we pray, Lord, you would continue to deal with our hearts. We thank you for your word, and Lord, what a nourishment it is to our spirits and to our hearts that, Lord, our mind would rest in you, even though we may not understand everything, but that we believe your word and that you are faithful. And so, Lord, as we lift our hearts to you, I pray that you deal with each of us, Lord. And, Father, if there's someone here who doesn't know you or over the Internet, that you will speak to their hearts of your love for them and your care and your desire to forgive them. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, whether you're here over the Internet, God has spoken to your heart, allow you to see Yourself is separated from God because of sin. But also that Jesus died in your place, that you might be forgiven. But you alone can call upon him to forgive you. It's called repentance. 
recognizing you're a sinner and that sin separates you from God and that he became literal sin for you who knew no sin, that God, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so he offers you an invitation to have your sins forgiven, to be made a new creation and to enter into the greatest fellowship that you've ever had with the Savior of the world, that he might lead and guide your life from day to day and show you how to live life altogether. If this is your desire, this can be your prayer to him, not to us, but to him. You can repeat it. He's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision, we want to welcome you to the family. Mike will meet you. My right, your left, by that door. He'll give you that Bible absolutely free. Share some important thing for your growth and answer any questions you might have. And you'll be free to leave. But don't leave here the same way you came in. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, read.